Good morning, good morning, good morning. Great to see you all here today. I do want to extend a word of welcome as well to our friends at Youth for Christ and what God is accomplishing through your gospel-driven efforts. I hope that if you are here, you will take Brian up on the invitation to join us for lunch down in the fellowship hall as we hear more about what God is doing in our own community and how God may want to use you and me to lock shields in helping our greater area understand and value all that God did in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a guest with us, my name is Jordan. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and also one of our elders. And if you are new, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, then you can look in the table of contents. The 16th book in the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. If you'll join us there in today, Having started in September, we are to chapter 10, so Nehemiah chapter 10. And since September, we have been studying how these Jewish exiles, by God's grace, have returned back to Jerusalem and in 52 days have rebuilt the walls. And these walls were highly significant because these walls protected the people of God in Jerusalem from the brutality of the other nations. Ultimately, so that Jesus could be born a Jew, could live a perfect life in the place of his people and accomplish everything in the eternal mind of God that Jesus came to accomplish. So the book of Nehemiah, you may think it's some book tucked away back there that who really reads that, but all of God's word is all of God's word, and the book of Nehemiah plays a significant part in salvific history. And so if you're new today, you've come on a great Sunday, because we're going to look here in chapter 10 at the people of God, and particularly how God was showing his grace in them, and I think you'll be convinced today that if these realities are true in your life, individually, and they're true in our lives collectively, then we can say what they did, that God is among us, that God is working among us. And friends, I love to hear the people of God sing. Thank you for singing this morning. I know you're not singing um, to the worship team. You're not singing to anybody here. You're singing to the Lord, but it blesses me highly to hear the people of God worship her God. And so this morning, Nehemiah chapter 10. Pray with me, and then we're going to hop in. Father, we thank you for your grace in giving us your word. Lord, we need help today. Um, I need help today. Uh, I, like some in this room, have a weary soul. And I pray that you would use this passage, this text, to foster in us spiritual strength. For we know that you have made it clear that you do not want us to just be hearers of the word. God, it is your desire that we be doers of your word. So what we know not now, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, please make us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, 
through the truth of your word. And may we all leave here amazed again at your grace that has saved us, your grace that will safely lead and carry us home. We love you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. And everybody said, Chapter 6, verse 15, the structure is completed. You remember back in chapter 6, after 52 days, they completed these walls. Remember, they prayed for four months. Nehemiah prayed for four months, and then he accomplished the unthinkable by God's grace in 52 days. And starting in chapter 8, now that the walls are in place, the people need to be rebuilt. For the people had been away from God. The walls were pretty easy to build. What's hard is building people. It's hard to build structures. I mean, it's easy to build structures. It's easy to build buildings, and it's easy to do physical work. Where the real grunt work is when you're seeking to build a people, when you're seeking to nourish a people and reestablish a people to love her God and fear her God and obey her God. And in chapter 8, Ezra the teacher, he takes the word of God and he opens it before the people, and the people weep at the word of God. And in chapter 8, what we notice is they are reestablishing the Bible as the authority for all that they're going to do going forward. And then in chapter 9, last week, they repented of all the ways that they had forsaken their God. And so the reestablishment of Scripture and the repenting of sin are always marks that God is doing a new and fresh work in your life individually and in us collectively. When the Word of God reorders us and we are a repenting people, then we will see what they saw. We will see a great revival break out. We will see an awakening break out, but it will be centered upon the Word of God. It was Augustine, St. Augustine, who said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And if you don't know this, you need to know this, you were made to know God. And if you don't know God via the gospel, then your heart, my friend, is restless. And that restlessness will begin to look for something to please the deepest desires of your soul. Sometimes it will manifest that restlessness. It will show in anger. It will show in rage. It will show in substance abuse. It will show in sexual promiscuity. It will show in horoscopes and you pursuing the occult. It will pursue in you trying to modify your behavior and just be a, quote, better person. It'll manifest in being overly zealous in your political engagement. There's a number of ways that your restless heart will seek to find something if it is not resting in God. And those are just a few things. Because as Calvin noted, the human heart is an idol factory. Your heart is an idol factory. And it will produce all kinds of idols out of you that you will look to to make you feel whole, to make you feel secure, to make you feel safe, to make you feel that you were okay. And you will keep pursuing who knows what until you, in the gospel, rest your heart in God. Now, as you read the Bible, what you learn about God is He is a very relational God, that God is in relationship with Himself. Amen. 
The Father is in love with the Son. And the Son is in love with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in love with the Father. And as C.S. Lewis called it, they are dancing together in perfect harmony together as a Godhead. They are in relationship with one another. And when you become a believer and you come to know God, you now get caught up in the God who is already in relationship with himself. So that now that you know God, you have a Father. Now that you know God, you have a Savior in Jesus. And now that you know God, you have a helper in the Holy Spirit. And so when you come to know God, you now are in relationship with the God who's already in relationship with himself. But it gets gooder. Because not only are you now in relationship with the God who is in relationship with himself, but you now have come into relationship with other people who are also in relationship with the God who is in relationship with himself. All this to say, God is a relational God. And he wants not just you to affirm things about him that are true. He actually wants a relationship with you. He wants a love relationship with his people. And here's the good thing about our God. Yes, you must come to him personally. But let me remind you, Titus 2.14. Jesus, it says, gave himself, notice, for us to redeem from lawlessness and to purify for himself. Would you give me that word? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is very important to remember because Christianity was never meant to be individualistic. It was never meant to be you and Jesus and your Bible sitting at home. I'm glad you're with us, but I hope you'll get to a church soon. It was never meant for you to live privately the Christian faith was always meant to be lived among a community of people who are in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that God has authority to rule and reign over the people who are now in relationship with Him. Now, the big idea of Nehemiah 10 is God displays His great name to and then through a people. God displays. When you think about the name of God, the name of God is everything that makes God God is his name. So sometimes when you name your children, you name them because you saw it on Google and you thought it was cute. And that's fine. But the way they name people in the Bible is they name them based upon the character that they desired to see in them. And so when you think about the name of God, what you should think of is everything that makes God God, that's his name. And what God wants to do in a people, particularly in local churches like this and globally around the world, is he wants to display all that he is to a people and then through a people. Three characteristics. I hope you have a uh, a bulletin here, and I hope you put your seatbelt on because here we go. Three things I want you to see about God revealing himself to a people and then through a people. First of all, they are a defined people. Verses 1 to 27, a defined people. Notice, on the seals, that would be equivalent to a signature. When you sealed something, you, you signed it. 
On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, we know him, and the son of Hakaliah. I love that name, Hakaliah. Can you imagine having a son named Hakaliah? And he's acting bad, and you say, Hakaliah! What a name. We have Nehemiah, we have Hakaliah. Now, in 938, I want you to notice, this is where we left off last week. Because of all this, we, this is the people who have reestablished the authority of Scripture in their life. They have repented of their sin. We make a firm covenant, and notice, in writing. We're not just saying it. We're going to write some stuff down about our commitment. In writing, on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then chapter 10, verse 1, that's exactly what they are going to set out to do. Now, in these 27 verses that I'm not going to read, are 84 persons, 84 persons that are going to sign this sealed document to say, we are going to follow the Lord. In verses 2 to 8, there are priests. They sign it. And then notice verse 9 to 13, these are Levites. These are JV priests. Uh, These are the assistants of the priests. And then third of all, notice verses 14 to 17, these are the leaders of the people. And then heading off the list himself is the son of Hakaliah, Nehemiah. But let me remind you, there are other citizens that are a part of this group. 50,000, by the way. Remember, 50,000 are who came around the word of God in chapter 8. So when these 84 signed this document, they're signing it on behalf of everybody else. They're committing that all the ones who've been left in their charge, as best as they can, they're going to make sure that they adhere to the covenant. Now, let me remind you, this is not a new covenant. God had made his covenant, his way to live, way back with our brother Moses. And then for all those years, the people rebelled against the covenant. They rebelled against God's rules and decrees of how the people ought to live. And so them signing this covenant, they're actually returning back to the commitment their forefathers had made. And that they had done foolishness for all these years, and now they come back and say, we're going to recommit to God, we're going to put it on paper, we're going to put it as a sealed document, and we're all going to sign it on behalf of the 50,000 people whom God has put under our care. So what I want you to see here is the people of God are a defined people. This is a defined people. So the covenant signing distinguish who's in and who's out. Who's going to do this and who's not going to do this. What a privilege it is, my friends, to be numbered among God's people. What a privilege it is to know that your name is written in heaven. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent the 70 out, and they come back with a missionary report. And they had cast out demons and done all kinds of miracles. And they come back so stoked, so excited, so excited that they could do that. And you remember what Jesus told them? Don't be excited that the demons tremble at you. Be excited that your names are written in heaven. In other words, be excited not that you have my authority. Be excited that you know me. Be excited that your name is written in heaven. So my friends, rejoice if your name is written in heaven, i.e. you are a Christian. If you are a Christian in this room, would you just say hallelujah? Hallelujah. We're told, John 10, that Jesus knows his sheep. Watch this by name. He knows you by, some people may not know your name, but he knows your name. 
Because he says you hear his voice and you follow him. That's how you know that you know his name. So what we have here is a picture in Nehemiah 10 of a defined people. And as we come into the New Testament, this is really significant. There's a principle that the early church counted people. They counted people. 3,000 were saved, Acts 3. 5,000 were saved, Acts 4. So the early church, they were a defined people. They knew how many they had. They counted. We count people here. We count people here. You know why? Because people count. So watch out for hyper-spiritual people that say things like, we're not about numbers. Really. What you really should say is you're not about numbers for numbers' sake. But you should be about the numbers of lives that are being changed by the gospel. You should be excited about counting the number of people that were saved this year. You should be excited about the number of people that were baptized this year. You should be excited about the number of marriages that were about to get a divorce, and now God has restored them back. You, you, you should be excited about counting the ways in which God is working the gospel among his people. So lists are not unimportant. Roll sheets and taking attendance is not unspiritual because people matter. This is why we do things here like church membership. Because when you commit to membership, what you're saying is, like they did, we're all in. We're all in. We believe what you believe. We want to use our gifts here. We believe the elders are leading this body best they can under scriptural authority. And, and we want to be in. And, and I would say this, friends. We actually cannot do gospel ministry effectively if we don't know that we are on the same page. From a theological standpoint, do we believe the same thing? And on a practical standpoint, the structures and the systems that make Pleasant Valley Church, Pleasant Valley Church. If you don't agree with those things, then it's not going to be a healthy relationship, and we're not going to be as effective with the gospel if we are not on the same page. And, and we don't sign a covenant here, but I, I just tell you, I think that's a good thing. To have members sign a covenant and say, I commit to these things, I think that's a good thing. I think there's precedent for it given here as a means of annual renewal. It's a way to keep membership updated. It's a way to make sure that those who are with us are really with us. And if you're not with us, then you won't sign the covenant and we love you, but you're not uh, going to be a part of us. I, I see value in that. I, 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 I have dear brothers who practice that in their church membership every year. You re-sign the covenant to say we're all in once again, and if you don't sign the covenant, then that means you don't want to be a member anymore. I think that's helpful. We don't do that here, but we do have a church covenant, and we, I put it in your bulletin today, our church covenant. I hope you got one. Our church covenant is when you become a part of this body, what you're saying is, is, is we're committing to these things at our church uh, member meetings when we come together and do the various tasks of the church, we say this covenant out loud as a way of vowing to each other. We commit to God and we commit to each other certain behaviors. And let's be clear, a church covenant is not anything new. In other words, that church covenant is nothing but the extrapolation of Scripture. This is what a Christian should be. This is what it means to live out New Testament Christianity. That's all that a covenant is. And a church covenant is a way to practice this principle of being a defined people.
people. Second of all, I want you to see they are a diverse people. 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Now, underline there in your Bible, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. These are not Jews, ethnically. They are part of another ethnicity, but they have separated themselves to belong to God's people. So what I want you to see is, is this is not about preserving ethnic distinction, ethnic distinction, as much as faith distinction. God has always had outsiders, ethnically, among his people in the Old Testament. They've always been there. In the book of Ezra, if you read it, there are non-Jews eating the Passover meal. They're eating the Passover meal because they have separated themselves from the other nations and have joined in to believe what the Israelites believed. And so the climax of the nations coming and being a diverse people before God finds its climax in the book of Revelation when it says every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne. So dear friends, how awesome it is that we get to belong to a diverse people. God told Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He didn't see that, but Jesus came and accomplished that by dying for the peoples of the world. Jesus didn't just die for Jewish people. Aren't you glad? Amen. He died for the peoples of the world, and in the end, we will be a diverse people. So we value diversity here at Pleasant Valley Church, not because it's cool, not because it's some new idea, not because we're trying to keep up with the culture, so we want to be, quote, diverse, because that's a big word in our culture right now, be diverse. This is why when, watch this now, any culture wants to be diverse for the sake of diversity or inclusion, they have missed the mark. But them wanting to be diverse is actually evidence that they are made in the image of God. Because God is a bouquet of diversity. But diversity only makes sense if you do it God's way. And diversity, God's way, is when we are all uniquely who we are, but united around the truth of the Word of God. So our diversity is always undergirded by our corporate commitment to the Word of God. We don't look the same, amen. We don't talk the same. We don't have the same dialect. We don't have the same salary. We don't like the same food. But we are all the same in the fact at one time we passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. God the Holy Spirit saved us, applied the gospel to us, and right now we are seeking to honor the God of the Bible. And that is what true diversity really looks like. So God is glorified when every tribe and tongue is singing his praise. Because in heaven, that's what we will do. And my prayer for our church here at Pleasant Valley Church, one of the prayers is that we would reflect more on earth who we are in eternity when it comes to the, the diversity that will be in the kingdom of God. And so friends, 
that leads us to this final characteristics. They weren't just a defined people. They were a diverse people. But finally, verses 29 to 39, they were a devoted people. Notice verse 29. This is what they're going to do. They're going to devote themselves to walk in God's law given by Moses, the servant of God. What we see in these verses is there is a cost if you're going to honor God. Friends, we are saved by grace and grace alone. But Titus 2 would say that it is the grace of God teaches us to say no to certain behaviors, certain things. In, in, in New Testament language, we would call this passage the cost of discipleship. It's going to cost you if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. And there's three things that he notes here in just a moment, but I want you to see that the pattern for God's people is that we learn to increasingly say no to sin and yes to him. No to sin and yes to him. Notice they are committing to observe and do all. Notice all. Would you say all? For those in the back... Can you say all? Guys, it's pretty weak. It's pretty weak. Would you say all? all? Beautiful. All the commandments. Notice not some, not some I like, some that are convenient, some that make sense with what I think philosophically or sociologically, but all the commandments. And notice, his rules and his statutes. So notice, they're committing back to God's word, driving all of life. And this is what we do with the church covenant. Again, we don't make new stuff up. We just say, this is what the Bible says. Let us put it in simple language so you can say, yeah, I commit to that. Now, there's three areas here I want you to see that they recommit themselves. First of all, marriage. Marriage. Notice verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. That would be the surrounding nations that don't love God, don't want to honor God. We're not going to give our daughters to the peoples of the land, and we're not going to take their daughters for our sons. So again, they're saying we're not giving our daughters to unbelievers. Again, this is not an ethnic distinction. Please make that clear. This is not an ethnic distinction. This is a faith distinction. God said, do not marry outsiders, not for ethnic reasons, but for worship reasons. Now, there were outsiders marrying Israelites, but watch this. They had a common faith. An example of that would be Ruth the Moabite. She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite, and yet she came to love Yahweh. She came to love the Lord. Another one would be Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. This woman is not an Israelite, and yet she comes and separates herself to follow Yahweh and his teachings and his people. I mean, the reason Solomon got in so much trouble is because he violated this command. Violated, first of all, breaking Genesis 2.24, that you get one wife, not however many you want. But second of all, that he's marrying all these women and concubines, and can you imagine keeping up with all of them? How many have trouble keeping up? No, never mind. <laughs> Here's the thing. I mean, this is what got him in trouble, because those foreign women 
got his heart, and his heart was no longer consecrated to God. And just for you missionary daters who think, oh, I'm going to date him or date her because I'm a missionary, I'm going to save them. Oh, they're actually probably going to win you over. You never find nowhere in Scripture you're supposed to be dating unbelievers to get them to come to Christ. Now, if you're married to one, we'll talk about that. But we're not, we're not missionary dating. The Bible knows nothing about missionary dating. So the issue here is worship. This is a principle. God's people should only marry God's people. Let me say that again. God's people should only marry God's people. My friend, we don't have to look hard for this for New Testament application, do we? 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Because Paul says the same thing. What fellowship does light have with darkness or darkness with light? So you must marry someone who is yoked with you in worship. Now why is this? Because unity in marriage is impossible if the couple does not agree on who God is. You're never going to be unified in marriage if you do not understand and agree this is who God is. This is what the Bible says. And second of all, marriage was intended, my friends, to display the relationship between Jesus, the groom, and the church, his bride. How can you display that in your marriage if you are marrying someone who does not believe God, does not believe the Bible? You don't even know what marriage means unless you marry someone who loves God too. Just like in Old Testament marriage. Old Testament marriage was a picture of God's covenant with Israel. So if a husband and a wife don't know God, how could they ever show what marriage was meant to show? Now, this is hard to swallow, but let me tell you, this is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of what it means to follow God. You want to follow your way? Go do your thing. But you want to follow God? You want to honor Him? You want His blessing upon your union? Follow Him. And so, friends, if you're a single person, let me tell you something. Your primary concern is not are they cute or handsome. That's important. There is an eros part of love. Hello. It's important. But your primary job is not are they cute or handsome. Your primary job is are they a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if they're not, I'm not going to give my heart away to them. Because let me tell you something. Once that happens, and, and especially when two become one, if you know what I mean, those two individuals have been super glued together. And did you know if you super glue two things together and you pull it apart, you cannot get both sides back on their part? They will always forever be on each other. So you must be very careful that you do not give yourself over to those who are not ethnically different from you. Africans can marry Americans, English. Ukrainians can marry Chinese people. Christians that have this idea that races must marry only races have no understanding of the Bible. And it really is, can really get racism really quickly. I understand culturally, you may say, I wasn't raised that way. Well, it, take how you were raised and crucified at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus died for the peoples of the world, and the, and the people of God now can marry the people of God, and that is the distinction. Now, if you're a believer here, you should use this as an opportunity today to renew your covenant to your wife. Renew your covenant to your husband. God takes very serious what you said on your wedding day. He takes very serious what came out of your mouth, what put on that paper. 
And he's more concerned about the, the, the happiness and harmony of your home than you putting on the wall, we've been married for 48 years. That's great. But what's the current status of your relationship? Re- recommit. And, and, and if you're married to an unbeliever, let me tell you, friend, my heart hurts for you. The Apostle Peter tells you, stay with them. Stay with them. Because God wants to use you as a tool to win them to Christ. Now, you may be in a hard relationship, and I'm not talking about physical abuse. I'm not talking about other forms of abuse that you just endure stuff for the glory of God. Every situation is different, and you need pastoral care on specific situations. If you're in that and you're wondering, well, should I stay? Should I go? But 30,000 foot view principle, God wants to use your Christianity to have a dynamic influence on your unbelieving spouse. And let me tell you, if you're in that situation, I'm convinced it is one of the hardest assignments ever to live out. It is one of the hardest assignments ever. But God gives grace. And I've witnessed so many, so many as a pastor, as a person of a husband or a wife who was married to an unbeliever Maybe he or she came to faith after the fact, or maybe the past is the past. Aren't you thankful for that? The past is the past. But they came to faith after the covenant, and God used them for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You know, this one's become kind of, it's kind of personal for me in one sense, because I, I had a, a grandpa that I loved very much, and he was an unbeliever, not a hostile unbeliever, but he was an unbeliever for his entire life. My fishing buddy, he taught me everything about fishing and everything in the outdoors, and yet he was an unbeliever. And my grandma, man, my, she stayed faithful to the Lord. She loved the Lord. She followed the Lord, was there on Sunday, loved her church family, kept loving um, Papa. And just before Paul, Paul passed away, 2012, I, I had the joy of seeing him come to Christ on the bank of uh, fishing with him at a lake you can see the other side of. You know what those lakes are? Um, and he came to faith in Christ, and God used my grandma's winsome witness to stay the course. So if you're in this room or you're watching online and you're married to an unbeliever, God will give you grace. Keep asking him for it. Keep surrounding yourself with people who love the Lord and love you and, 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 and let them encourage you and bless you because God has you in an amazing spot to make an eternal impact in the person that you sleep by every single night. Somebody say amen. Second of all, I want you to see they come back to the Sabbath. Notice 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Now, technically, they've not been working on the Sabbath. They were not supposed to be doing that. But these, these Persians have been working on the Sabbath, and now they are exchanging goods on the Sabbath, and that's their way of getting around. Well, we're not working. We're just going to get food for our families. But they are sneak, sneaking from their own selves, sinning. And so Sabbath day was ultimately an expression of trust in God. So in doing business on the Sabbath, what you were saying is, I don't trust God. That if you work hard six days a week, God would tell Israel, then I will provide. I'll do it through manna, I'll provide for you. And notice, we will forgo the crops of the seventh year. So every seventh year, they didn't work the land. You know why? Because the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, God loves to bless people in a benevolent way, in a common grace way. And so the people of Israel for a whole year, I mean, imagine that. Imagine if you left your job for a year. Could you survive? Wow. 
Don't work your field. You're not going to have anything to eat. And trust me. One of the main reasons this practice is so important is because it marked off God's people from the nations. The Sabbath was like a, a wedding band. Because all these nations are working really hard and all of a sudden the Jews are taking off on Saturday. And what it said to the nations is, oh, they trust God's going to take care of them, even though they're not working one day a week. One of the main reasons, by the way, they go into exile is because they violated the Sabbath. And you know how long they were in exile? Seventy years. That is not an accident, my friend. Seventy years. So what do they do after 70 years of rebellion? Well, they return to practicing one in seven rest a week, and one in seven rest every seven years. So how do we apply this today? How do we apply the Sabbath today? Just stick with me. One of the reasons God built this into their work week was to say, God's going to provide. And what the Sabbath did is it pointed to Christ. We're cold in Colossians 2, 16 to 17, put that in your margin, that the Sabbath was a shadow that pointed to Christ. The Sabbath was not a shadow of Sundays. We're told in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 that. Can I help you understand something? Please. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Let me say that again. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's Day. The reason it's the Lord's Day is because it's the day our Lord rose from the grave Sunday, the first day of the week. And so if you want real rest, trust Christ. The way you and I fulfill the Sabbath today is we trust Christ. In Jesus, you have rest, not just one day a week, every day of the week. We're told in Hebrews 4.3 that we who believe have entered into God's Sabbath rest. Sab this is why we don't practice the Sabbath anymore from an Old Testament perspective because it was a shadow. And now that Christ has come, He fulfilled what the Sabbath was pointing to, that now you can rest. I can rest. The Sabbath is not ultimately Sunday. The Sabbath is ultimately Jesus. You should write that down. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Jesus. And when you learn to rest in Jesus, you are Sabbathing because the Sabbath finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So this, my friends, is the gospel. You stack up all the other world religions in the world. They do not offer rest. They do not offer rest. They offer don't do this, do this, put that down, pick that up, go here, don't go there, do, 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 do. And it's a whole bunch of doo-doo. Because in the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus says, come to me, and you'll get rest for your weary soul. So, friend, let me ask you this. Is your soul at rest before God? Are you right now resting in Jesus Christ and all that he is for you before a holy God? If not, come weary soul. You will never do enough to please God. If you're here today because you think this is going to get you brownie points with God in eternity, you're wrong. You're wrong. You must rest in Christ. So come and Sabbath in Jesus. Should you take a day off? Yeah, you should. Should you rest? Yeah, you should. I think there's a principle here that you lift out to say there should be one day that you're resting. But the Sabbath's been fulfilled in Jesus. Third of all, and finally, the temple. Verses 32 to 39 in all these verses, 
There's nine references here to the physical structure of the temple. It all culminates, notice verse 39, we will not neglect the house of God. Notice, we will not, that's what this is all about. Up to this point, you know who kept the temple going? The Persians. You know who kept the fire going and provided the wood? The Persians. The temple had a fire that could never go out. And so think about all the wood that has to constantly be brought in to make sure that the fire never went out. And the Persians were doing all that work up to this point. Because remember when Nehemiah left and went? Remember, Nehemiah funded this whole project. Remember he told him where the forest is and how to build his house and yada, yada, yada. And now the people are saying, listen, this, we're responsible for this. We should be providing for this. And so we need, they needed to provide contributions to the temple. Now, let me tell you this, we don't worship at a temple, but we do support the work of ministry. Amen? We don't worship at a temple, but there's a principle here that we do support the work of ministry. And we see the New Testament church will continue to practice financial generosity, to continue to give, to continue to support the work of the ministry. So when we give financially to our church, we are supporting the work of the gospel around the world, caring for the needy, caring for hurting people. We pay the salaries of our church staff. Thank you. So a part of our church covenant is we're going we're gonna to be faithful stewards. And please remember this. Every penny that you give matters. I remember when I was living out on my own at 19 years old, and I mean, I was living at an internship, so I didn't get paid at all. I, was, I, I paid to go there. And they didn't pay me anything. And I worked the ministry, making phone calls, calling people, setting up mission trips, all of this stuff. So I didn't get paid anything. But I, I would get people that would send me money from my church family that knew I was there and thought maybe he wants some ramen noodles or something, so let me send him something. And I thought in my mind, I thought, my church doesn't need my 12 cents. That's what I thought. My church doesn't need my 12 cents. I mean, that's all I can really, I think, give right now. But can I tell you something? Your 12 cents matters. Your 12 cents matters to God because it's an act of worship. It's an act of stewardship. It's an act of I trust God and I want to, I want to give. But we are preparing right now our 2024 budget. And we have 143 members. And if you do 12 cents times 143 and you gave 12 more cents every Sunday, that would make a big impact. What do you think about if you did 143 and you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip my grande this week or my... You have to go tall now. I'm going to skip my tall coffee. I'm going to give two extra dollars. You do two times 143, that's almost $15,000. Or if you had 100 members, say, I'm going to give five more weekly for the next 52 Sundays. That's $26,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Think about all the church planters that we could help. Think about all the people that we could help with that $26,000 extra dollars. So there's a principle here. Commit to financially provide for the work of the church that God has called you to. And by the way, hear me say this. Thank you, because a lot of us do it really well. Others of us are not doing as well. But use this as an opportunity to recommit to this. Number one, to your marriage. Number two, to resting in Christ. And number three, to contributing to the work of the ministry. All these things set them apart as the people of God. And I would argue they continue to set us apart as the people of God, that we are a defined people, we are a diverse people, and we are a devoted people. All of history is moving toward a defined people, 
every person who has called upon the name of the Lord, every defined people, that is also a diverse people who will be for all of eternity worshiping around the throne of God, and finally, where we will forever rest in Jesus as our eternal Sabbath. All of history is moving that direction, and we pray that God would use us here at PVC for His glory, that the nations, just like the nations would see what God was doing through Israel, that God would see us, the church, and see, I can get in on this, but if I have to repent and I have to believe and rest in the finished work of Christ alone. So friends, this week in your prayer time, would you pray that we would continue to be a defined people? Would you pray that diversity would take more shape here? And would you pray that we would remain devoted to, can you give me that word, all? The commandments of God. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, what a privilege it is for us to be your people, to be in relationship with you, to be in relationship with one another. We know that we're here by grace. We know that our salvation came at a great cost to our Lord Jesus. And so we pray as we, God, move on from this moment that you would help us be faithful keepers of this new covenant that you have made with us in Jesus. Namely, Lord, that that we would love you through glad obedience in our marriages. Oh God, I lift up my dear brother or sister who's here watching online and they are tired, Lord. They're married to someone who doesn't love you and Lord, they're tired. Would you help them renew their commitment to you and would you strengthen them by your grace? I pray, Lord, that we all would learn how to better Sabbath in Jesus and that we would learn to rest. We know you don't want workaholics. We know that sleep is a good thing, something that I'm not as good at as I should be. Lord, I pray that you would help our rest in Christ spiritually undergird our discipline of physical rest in other areas, that when we physically rest, we would think upon our spiritual rest in Christ. And finally, Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless this dear congregation as we seek to practice what they did, that, God, you've called us to this church to to care on a financial basis for what we have and the ministry to the nations that you've called us to bear. So would you give us grace, God, as a church to stay the course as your dear people in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just take a moment there, just these 30 seconds. Would you just recommit your heart and life to God? hear your word and just walk away and say amen and what's next Lord would you seal these truths in our minds that we might be a people that you would be pleased by and you would use that as a testimony to the nations around us of your grace and your goodness and how you have loved us so we prayed in Jesus name and everybody said can we stand to our feet and respond in singing